Welcome to the Liberty Cafe, where oppression is on the menu. I'm glad you're with me today on episode 20 of the Liberty Cafe. I like big round numbers. They represent milestones and perseverance and persistence, and you're certainly persisting if you're with me after 20 episodes of the Liberty Cafe. So thank you for being here. also want to acknowledge our sponsor for the Liberty Cafe, Scorecard Media. We're glad to be in partnership with such a group that brings truth and liberty to the public debate over politics and policy in Texas. So thank you, Scorecard Media. Douglas Wilson, a pastor in Reformed Evangelical Circles, recently brought to my attention a quote from Tim Keller, a pastor in my denomination, the Presbyterian Church of America. I'll let Wilson read it to you. The Bible binds my conscience to care for the poor, but it does not tell me the best practical way to do it. Any particular strategy, high taxes and government services versus low taxes and private charity, may be good and wise and may even be somewhat inferred from other things the Bible teaches, but they are not directly commanded, and therefore we cannot insist that all Christians, as a matter of conscience, follow one or the other. The Bible binds my conscience to love the immigrant, but it doesn't tell me how many legal immigrants to admit to the U.S. every year. It does not exactly prescribe immigration policy. The Bible tells me that abortion is a sin and a great evil, but it doesn't tell me the best way to decrease or end abortion in this country, nor which policies are most effective. The current political parties offer a potpourri of different positions on these and many, many other topics, most of which, as just noted, the Bible does not speak to directly. This means that when it comes to taking political positions, voting, determining alliances and political involvement, the Christian has liberty of conscience. Christians cannot say to other Christians, quote, no Christian can vote for, close quote, or, quote, every Christian must vote for, close quote, unless you can find a biblical command to that effect. Tim Keller. The problem is that Keller doesn't actually believe what he's saying. How do I know this? Well, because Keller also said this. If you have white skin, it's worth $1 million over a lifetime, Keller says. You have to say, I don't deserve this. I'm the product of and standing on the shoulders of other people who got that through injustice. The Bible says you are involved in injustice, and even if you didn't actually do it. Also, Tim Keller. What it boils down to, apparently, is that Tim Keller is quite willing to do a deep dive into Scripture, seeking the tiniest jot and tittle to take down conservative Christians. But when it comes to appeasing liberals, he often seems to ignore what the Bible is telling him. We'll talk a little bit more about that later. For now, let's just make believe, though, that Keller does believe what he's saying about the Bible not providing any direction for how to love immigrants and the poor or to stop abortion. How does he justify this? Well, he doesn't talk about it very much, but Keller seems to embrace what is known as the two kingdoms theology, which is very popular these days in reform circles. Basically, the two kingdoms approach is this view that there are two kingdoms in this world, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man, and the two don't really mix. Essentially, advocates of 2K theology lead the civil sphere to government and the spiritual sphere to the church. This is very similar to dispensationalism, which is popular in a lot of Baptist and Bible churches. In practice, though they would dispute this, but in, but in practice, both of these theologies essentially have abandoned the structures of civil society 
as being outside the church's realm of practice. And they essentially teach that God has done the same thing. So, for instance, when Jesus says, I am making all things new, advocates of 2K would say that this does not apply to civil society, the structures of civil society. For instance, David Van Drunen, who's written perhaps the most complete book explaining Two Kingdoms theology, wrote that Jesus is not redeeming the cultural activities and institutions of this world. So in this light, a friend asked me, and this friend does follow the Two Kingdoms theology. He asked me one time recently, is there religious freedom in the kingdom of God? Well, it'd be helpful if we could just talk about for a second, what is the kingdom of God? Basically, if you look at the Westminster Confession, the kingdom of God is essentially the church. Those people who are in the church are in the kingdom of God. And then those people who are not in the kingdom of God, advocates of 2K would say, we basically have these two different kingdoms that we're looking at when it comes to how the earth is being ruled. I disagree with that. I think in asking this question, my friend wants to highlight that there is obviously no freedom of worship in the church. All who enter as members into the church are required to worship God as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. There's no option. But then my friend contrasts this with the cherished American tradition of freedom of religion in the government political sphere, i.e. the kingdom of man. This is how he put it. Religious freedom is one of the chief hallmarks and blessings we value here in our country and throughout the West for obvious reasons. But on the other hand, religious freedom was certainly not an aspect of ancient Israelite society, nor would it be proper to see the church as an institution that embodies it, at least in the way it is practiced in the U.S. Clearly, it will not be part of the new heavens and the new earth either. From my perspective, he writes, 2K allows for the ability to value these two goods, religious freedom in the broader society and religious exclusivity in the church, while being biblically consistent. Religious freedom is a temporary blessing in this current age in that it preserves the broader peace among a diverse population. Clearly, religious exclusivity is important in the church for reasons I don't need to defend. And of course, I agree with him on that last statement. There is no freedom of religion in the church. But I think he misses the mark overall on this. Before I dig into the big reasons, let me just point out the problems with this statement that religious freedom is a temporary blessing in this current age that preserves the broader peace among a diverse population. I think today is the perfect time to look at that statement and see how clearly wrong it is. It is the collapse of the willingness to worship and obey God that is bringing American society and the world to the place of great violence and civil disorder today. And that makes perfect sense when you look at the Bible, because the Bible makes it very clear that there is really no such thing as religious freedom. It doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not a Christian, whether you work in the church or in civil government, in Hollywood or El Paso. All people are required to worship God. So for instance, we could look at some rulers in civil government who in the Old Testament decided that they weren't going to worship God and see what happened to them. Pharaoh had a problem for not worshiping God and was called to account. Nebuchadnezzar, same thing. Belshazzar. And then the king of Nineveh. None of those got a pass. They were all held to God's standard. So what the 
advocates of two kingdoms theology miss here, those who talk about freedom of religion, is that they miss the different spheres of authority and the different weapons for enforcement that are given by God to church government and to civil government. And let's take a look at that. So church government is focused on protecting our souls. And for doing this, they carry the sword of the word God. We see pictures of this in scripture where the sword of the word is God is sticking out of Jesus's mouth. And so this, of course, is where the Catholic Church and others in the Middle Ages erred. They sought to wield the sword of steel in the protection of souls. And so they were chopping off heads and burning people at the stakes. But that was wrong because the sword of steel is reserved for the civil government. Yet it cannot be wielded in areas that the civil government doesn't have authority. So, for instance, the government shouldn't be chopping off your head just because you're talking heresy. And, and this is where Keller and 2K advocates, I think, really get it wrong. In the zeal for promoting two and only two kingdoms, they ignore or kind of brush aside the fact that there are really three formal government structures that have been instituted by God. There's church government, there's civil government, and there's family government. So while 2K advocates will have no problem supporting the Jeffersonian concept of separation, church and state. Make little mention of the separation of family and state when the state encroaches on the authority and responsibilities that God has given to families. And it's important to add to the individuals in those families. So when the government decides to care for the poor, Keller and company say the Bible does not tell me the best practical way to do it. But in fact, it does tell us the best practical way to do it. The Bible tells us that the best way to care for the poor is through individuals and families they are part of and the charity that comes from their heart. Caring for the poor and for the immigrants and others like that is a responsibility of the family government, not the civil government. Likewise, then Keller would say, any particular strategy, like high taxes and government services versus low taxes and private charity, may be good and wise and may even be somewhat inferred from other things that the Bible teaches, but they are not directly commanded, and therefore we cannot insist that all Christians, as a matter of conscience, follow one or the other. Maybe, though I'm not quite ready to give in on that, but surely... It's not the case that the Bible tells whites that they are involved in injustice, and even if you didn't actually do it. Yet Keller in that situation has no problem insisting that all white Christians, as a matter of conscience, repent of their white racism. The truth of the matter is that while the Bible might not tell the government, thou shalt not impose high taxes, build public schools, and establish poverty programs, the biblical concepts of limiting government are pretty clear and direct. For instance, there are a lot of laws and scriptures that lay specific ethical requirements on civil rulers. Romans 13.3 tells us that rulers are not a terror to good conduct. That's a pretty limiting factor, yet we can look all across the country today and see laws that are terrors to good conduct. Rulers are also to serve the Lord with fear and kiss the Son, as we see in Psalm 2. That means they need to honor and obey him, and it doesn't matter whether they are Christian or not. Rulers are also supposed to execute justice in the morning and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed. That's in Jeremiah 21. So an oppressive government isn't doing its job. Rulers should also not build their houses by unrighteousness. 
or his upper rooms by injustice, or make his neighbors serve him for nothing and does not give him his wages. Neither should rulers acquire many horses for himself, or wives, or excess silver or gold. That's all from Deuteronomy 17. I think if we took some of that language and applied it to government today, we could see a lot of things that the government is doing wrong. So these scriptures and lots of other passages in the Bible show us that rulers in civil government and civil government itself are clearly constrained by numerous ethical requirements in scriptures. And then, of course, this brings us to Rehoboam. Rehoboam, if you recall, was the son of Solomon. And after his father Solomon died, he became king of Israel. But there was another man out there, Jeroboam, who had actually been anointed king of Israel by one of God's prophets. And it set up this encounter. So the the people of Israel, led by Jeroboam, came before Rehoboam. And in 1 Kings 12, they said to him, Your father Solomon made our yoke heavy. Now, therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. Rehoboam took counsel with his advisors, and based on that counsel, he came back to the people of Israel and said, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So at that point, the people of Israel sought out Jeroboam to be their king, and the country was divided. Yet it's important for us to remember that this wasn't the end of things, that God had promised there would always be an heir of David on the throne of Judah. And he kept that promise. And about 900 or so years later, when that final and eternal heir, Jesus Christ, came in preparation for claiming his thrones, he said in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Now we have to remember that Jesus here is talking about a spiritual yoke, but any serious student of Scripture is quite aware of how figurative language in the Bible is used to communicate real truths that lay hidden just beneath the surface. And in this case, the contrast between the unfaithful King Rehoboam And the faithful King Jesus is just too powerful to be ignored. And it fits right in with the warnings to the people of Israel that kings will take your sons and take your daughters and take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and will take the tenth of your grain and your vineyards and your male servants and your female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and the tenth of your flocks. And then he will take all this and he will give them to his officers and his servants. And it tells us he will make you his slaves. So when we look at all this in context and throw in the fact that the spirit of God sent Jesus to proclaim liberty to the captives, maybe some of those captives made slaves by kings themselves. And there is simply no way that anyone who knows much about scripture could say that the Bible doesn't speak to us about what civil government is supposed to do and the limits that are on it. And that includes how to deal with the poor and the immigrants, abortion, and quite a few other things. Yet plenty of people tell us that this is the case, that the Bible just doesn't speak to us about these things. The only reason I can see for this is that they were just blinded by desire to appease the world. And that, of course, has been the struggle with the church since its creation 
is it's always seeking to appease the world. And the only way that we can avoid that is by the power of the Holy Spirit. So when we hear some folks from what I like to call the Tim Keller slash David French camp of the evangelical church making statements like these, I think it's okay to get mad at them. But it's also important to remember that we must pray for them, that God would open their eyes and reveal their blindness to them. He's done that for all of us, all of us who are Christians. He's given us new hearts and opened us to the blindness of our reliance on ourselves rather than on him. But there's a lot of blindness sometimes left to go, and we all have different areas where that affects us. In this case, some of these folks seem to be having that problem when it comes to how they understand scriptural direction about civil government. But the bottom line here is that we as Christians should be encouraged by the struggle we're in because Jesus Christ is the king of creation and he is right now at this time ruling at the right hand of his father and he is making all things new, including us. Thank you for joining me today on episode 20 of the Liberty Cafe and for our sponsor, Scorecard Media.